This number here is staggering to me. 75%. Um, that is the number of young people who graduate from high school, who go off to college, who never darken the door of a church again, and literally they lose their faith. These are, these are the Christian young people. These are the kids who grow up in homes like are represented today. And so the impetus behind this series has been for every generation in our church. I think every generation in our church can be challenged through this series because God calls every generation to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so we need to be better prepared to give reasonable defense for our faith. But really one of the big burdens behind this series has been to um, reach our young people and let them know that when they go off to a college, just because a professor has a cool set of wire rim glasses and they've got all these letters after their name, doesn't mean that they're telling you the truth or doesn't mean that they're taking the truth and coming to the right conclusions about the truth. And so there's a lot of anti-God, anti-Christian bias in our society at large. You can see that every day you turn on the news. And so this, this number is, should be ever before us, folks, as we parent, as we lead ministries here in our church, that we, we want to be a part of seeing that number go down. We want to be a part of the solution. And so it's my prayer that this series um, would add to that mission of seeing that number go down. I was so encouraged. Where's Samuel Brown? I'm going to call out Samuel Brown. Uh, he's, uh, he might be out at the moment. But anyway, Samuel Brown, he was so encouraging to me yesterday. He said, uh, he's, he's, he's one of our 12-year-olds or 11? 12. Uh, Eric Brown's only and oldest son. Um, he came to me yesterday and said, you know, this has been my favorite series thus far, a 12-year-old. I'm like, wow, you know, a 12-year-old? I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad a 12-year-old is catching these things, and, and, and my kids have even shared some thoughts. And so um, as we continue our series, last week we had a great time with our guest speaker here. He shared on the age of the earth. If you missed last week, please catch that. Some fascinating evidence from dinosaur bones, diamonds, and DNA. And so it was great to have our guest speaker here. Uh, make sure to stop by the table over here if you'd like to look at his resources. Uh, he left a box that we'll be shipping back soon. See Mike Thompson. Wave at us, Mike, so everybody knows who you are. See Mike if you want to avail yourself of any more of those resources. We had several folks say that they weren't prepared last week to get them. So we have those here. Then we also still have our table out in the lobby as well. Many of you have already taken books. Uh, where's John and Pat Fenton? They have, they, have, uh, they have bought like four, five, six, I don't know how many books now, and they're 80, 80 years old roughly. I don't want to give away too much data here, but 80 years old, they're still learning, and here's what was really cool. On Tuesday night, they were at the movie theater with me watching the Moses movie that was promoted last week on social media. That was so cool, and just so you know, Pat likes to hold the popcorn. Uh, I saw her holding the popcorn, and uh, that, was, that was very... Uh, I, I hope I'm like them when I grow up and my wife and I can date at the movies and, and, and still learn. That'll be, that'll be fun. But anyway, uh, the main theme of this series has been that it's important for us to examine the components that have led to our faith because it's only in understanding better these components and reasonings that we can have a faith that is stronger and a more humble interaction with others. Um, and so we've looked at theism, which is a basic belief in God. We've shared three main reasons or three main pieces of evidence for building a basic belief in God. And that is um, we have 
said that uh, truth exists. And so we've talked about that. We've talked about the existence of God through the cosmological, the teleological, and the moral argument. And then we've also looked at um, miracles and are they possible. And so it's not a question of whether miracles are possible. Ultimately, it's a question of believability. And um, even scientists are now agreeing that Genesis 1-1 is the greatest miracle in existence. It's, it's the miracle that brought all this other stuff into our known existence. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1. And truly, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, then you can believe every other verse in the Bible. If you get past Genesis 1-1 with good logic and good reasons and good foundation, then it's possible to believe every other miracle that you read about in the Bible. And what we now have through scientific evidence, and I, and I hope you've uh, uh, availed yourself of all that evidence and thought about it and weighed it, we now have scientific evidence and proof that the greatest miracle has indeed occurred. Genesis 1-1, the cosmological argument. And from the cosmological argument, we've seen the incredible design. And then we've seen the fact that all of us attest to there's this unwritten moral law that we all hold to. And even scientists who have discovered some of these amazing discoveries about the beginning of the universe have said this. Arno Penzias, uh, the one who discovered that microwave cosmic background radiation from uh, a singularity of an event that began this universe, he said this, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. And so you have scientists who have made some of the most amazing discoveries. And of course, they're still argued and weighed and looked at from many different perspectives. But you have scientists who are saying, listen, Genesis 1-1, even if I didn't have all the science, uh, the Bible points this out. The Bible affirms this. And so the question then becomes is why don't people believe in miracles? And, and of course, several other scientists said this about this beginning of the universe. Genesis 1-1, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Um, Michael Turner said the significance of this discovery cannot be overstated. They have found the holy grail of cosmology. And so when you consider Genesis 1-1, if it's logically possible, and we can believe Genesis 1-1 then any other time when God chooses to suspend the natural laws of nature, the basic laws of nature, and intervene, we can believe that because he created the boundaries. He created the sandbox, so to speak, so he can step into that sandbox anytime he wants and do things such as create a global flood. It's real. It happened. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming for it. Uh, he, can, he can prepare a great fish to swallow a man whole and still have that guy somehow be living or come back to life three days later. And then, of course, one of the most incredible miracles and the miracle that gives us great hope, the one we'll be studying in just a few weeks, the resurrection. You know, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, what's fascinating if you read the Gospels is that Jesus affirmed both the flood as a miracle and Jonah as a miracle. And so if we say that the flood didn't happen or that if Jonah didn't happen and we're incredulous about that, then what we're really doing is we're bringing into doubt the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus says that he's God and Jesus rose from the dead. So from the resurrection then, you hinge the fact that if Jesus affirmed that those two things are true, then certainly we can affirm all of these 
others. See, it's really not a question of are miracles possible. It's a question of will people believe the evidence? Will they believe it? I like, um, I mentioned this last week or a couple weeks ago, Richard Lewontin in Time Magazine said, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes, meaning we have decided beforehand that miracles aren't possible. Okay? He says, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Why? Because if they allowed a divine foot in the door, that would mean that they're accountable to that divine foot, that they uh, then have to deal with the God question. And so materialists don't like to even consider that, and I think we've given several quotes throughout the series on that issue. And what this does, what, what quotes like these do, is they bring you to the reality that there's probably at least three reasons why people don't believe in God. Number one, intellectual. And really, a lot of this series is going to give you intellectual reasons for why your faith is so reasonable if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, we hope that you'll see why trusting in God and ultimately why believing in Jesus Christ and biblical Christianity is the only way that makes sense. And so we're giving a lot of intellectual arguments and foundations and reasonings in this series. And so there's the intellectual reason for why people don't believe in God. They just think that there's no evidence for the Christian worldview. And that's why we have things like what we call apologetics. Because apologetics is that study of how to give answers and reasons to overcome intellectual objections. To show, to show the reasonableness and believability of Christianity. So that's one reason why people don't believe. And honestly, if people will have an honest conversation about the evidence then most of the time people get past the intellectual objection because they see that actually there's a lot of good intellectual evidence for Christianity. The second reason why people don't believe, though, comes into the emotional arena. The emotional arena. And we're not to our notes yet, but you might just want to jot down these three reasons and keep these in mind. Because when you meet somebody who says that they're an atheist, you really want to start to try to dig in and find out, okay, is it an intellectual reason or is there something deeper? And so, number two, emotional. Some won't consider Christianity because of its abuses or misrepresentations. Some people say, well, I can't ever be a Christian because of how the church has hurt people down through the centuries. Or they might have had a bad church experience growing up and, and, and the church hurt them or wronged them. And so they turn their back on Christianity because of an emotional hurt. And so, or, or they look at the evil, pain, and suffering of this world. We covered that, that question a couple of weeks ago. And, and they look at the evil, pain, and suffering, and that holds powerful sway. And so there's an emotional uh, undertone to why they don't believe in God. But emotions don't change facts. And what you read and study, it's fascinating. If you read some of the new atheists in their books that are out there today, like um, uh, God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, The God Delusion by Richard Saw uh, Dawkins, uh, Letters to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris, all these big new atheists, what you find in these books when you read them is you find that actually their arguments aren't intellectual, they're on the emotional level. They're dripping with emotion and, and outrage and, and all these emotional arguments, but emotion does not change facts. And so you have an intellectual reasons why people don't believe, emotional, and then you also have volitional. And what is that? Volitional is what we just read in that quote earlier. Volitional is, regardless of the evidence, regardless of how they feel, they choose not to believe. 
They've made up their mind before ever looking at any evidence. Their mind is made up. They don't want to give up the life that they are currently living for a life that is different. And so that's another reason why. And and maybe you've had conversations with folks like this. You know, you get into a conversation about God, and you can tell they're not even listening. They're just preparing their next response. Why? Because their mind is already made up. And so as we look at these reasons, these are things we have to deal with as we talk and as we um, communicate to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. We have to understand that there's these reasons why people don't believe. And with this third one, volitional, it's very powerful. If you've chosen to reject God before you ever look at the evidence, then how difficult is it going to be to actually see the evidence? Um, I like this quote. Some people cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a police officer. Right? I mean, there are, there are some folks out there who want to live a certain way. Well, they're not going to be able to find God because if they found God, that would demand a transformation of their life. Because when you really get the unspeakable gift of the grace of God, it changes you. And so some people cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a police officer or doesn't want to, right? And so how many of us honestly could say that most people who are not Christians are not Christians because they simply just don't want to be? The evidence of this is when you seek, as I mentioned, to have an open and honest conversation and dialogue they ask you a question, and then you seek to try to answer it. Before, but before you can even answer the question, they've already moved on to the next question. I had a debate with two atheists about five or six months ago, and it was boom, 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 boom. I mean, questions from both of them, left and right. And, and really, they weren't interested in my answers. And so it's obvious that when people are not listening, nor do they care to listen, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, I mentioned him a couple weeks ago in this whole issue of the, the believability, of miracles, believability of miracles. This is what he says. Again, this proves that if you've already got your mind made up, it's going to be very hard to share with you the intellectual reasons for why Christianity is reasonable. He says, if you were to prove the God of Christianity to us, we should believe him all the less. Okay. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for at least being honest to the fact that if we were able to prove it, You'd believe it all the less. Isn't that sad? So is evidence really the issue? I would say it's based on these uh, statements. It's not the issue. It's people's hearts. It's people's wills. You see, there's one thing that I love about God, and that is God cannot force people into heaven against their will. For someone who has said all their life, my will be done, when they stand before God, God says, with a, heart, with a broken heart, I believe, your will be done. So is evidence really the issue, or is it more of an issue of a volitional reason? And so as we've looked at this series, we've tried to make that case for theism. And we did that here in the first part, and we uh, basically covered these three things. As I mentioned, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to share these verses with you as we look at this topic today. And that is, is the New Testament true? Is the New Testament true? And this is going to be two or three weeks long. 
Uh, we don't have time to get through all this evidence today. But how many of you are thankful for the Bible this morning? Say amen if you're thankful. I am so thankful for the Word of God. So what we're doing in the second half of the series is showing to you that out of the three possible theistic beliefs in the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, Christianity is the only one that makes sense based upon, again, the evidence that now we pull from the Word of God as the uh, specific revelation of God that he is true, that he exists, and that he wants to have a relationship with us. And so as we look now at the Bible, we're going to give to you reasons why you can trust and believe the Bible. And so is the New Testament true? So all we've done up to this point is try to remove a few key obstacles to believing in a basic belief in God. Does God exist? And we've shared with you truth, the existence of God, and miracles. And as we've said, if, there, if the greatest miracle of all has occurred, the universe leaping into existence from nothing, then we can believe every other miracle. And then the question is, is do any of these miracles confirm a messenger or a person in human history as being from God or as being God? And as we look to that, we look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at these scriptures this morning. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, Paul here is saying that here's the bedrock of our faith, that Christ lived, he, he died, and he was raised from the dead for our salvation. And he says two times in this passage that it's according to the scriptures. What's he saying? He's saying that the foundation of our faith, the source of our faith, rests upon the record, the eyewitness testimony of these writers as inspired by God to what Jesus said and did. And it's based on the scriptures. And so as we look at the New Testament, as we make a case for is the New Testament true, you might ask the question, and some who are you know, really kind of thinking ahead, well, Pastor Brian, why aren't we looking at the Old Testament as well? The reason we're not going to deal with the Old Testament as well is because if you can prove that the New Testament is true, you get the Old Testament thrown in with it. Why? Because Jesus and the New Testament writers did what? They affirmed the Old Testament as being true. In fact, they quoted it hundreds of thousands of times. Jesus affirmed Moses and the prophets. Paul did. Peter did. Multiple writers did. And so we're really focusing on just the New Testament. However, when we establish that the New Testament is true, we also get the Old Testament thrown in because, oh yeah, if that person who claimed to be God, his name's Jesus, if he died and rose from the dead and he said that the Old Testament was also God's word, then we're going to take his word for it. Amen? And so I hope you see the reasoning and the logic behind that. And so that's why we're only focused on the New Testament. And of course, John 5, Jesus affirms Moses and his writings. And so... Is the Bible true? Two questions for investigating the reliability of the New Testament, and we're just going to deal with question one today, and that is, do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? And then next week, we're going to ask this question, do the original New Testament documents tell the truth? So, question one, do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? Everybody hold up your Bible if you've got a Bible. Uh, hold up your phone if you've got it on your phone. Okay. How do you know that that book is what was written 2,000 years ago? And how do you know that you've got the right words sitting in your lap right now? 
That's an important question. And how do we logically and reasonably explain that to people who have gone to universities and read guys like Bart Ehrman who say that there's over 400,000 errors in the Bible and you can't know even what, which, you, you can't even trust one single word in the New Testament. All right? So we're going to look at that here in just a moment. So, yeah, misquoting Jesus. Um, Bart Ehrman. How many of you have ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, a couple. Um, Bart Ehrman, unfortunately, and this is why I want to tell you about him, because if you go to a secular university and you look on their course offerings, you're like, oh, they offer a religion course. You might assume that that's friendly to Christianity and friendly to a basic belief in God. In many secular universities, I actually got a text message about a year ago from a former teenager up in the youth group that I led in Indiana. And um, the father texted me and said, my daughter is coming home with questions about the Bible, how he got the Bible. And the first question I asked him is, what textbooks is she using in her religion class? And he said, oh, I don't know, it's some guy, uh, it's kind of a weird last name. Uh, uh, his first name is Bart, and I said, Bart Ehrman. Before he even finished it, I said, is that Bart Ehrman? He's like, yes, how did you know? And so I started to expound to him some of the things I'm going to share with you over the next couple of weeks about this. See, Bart Ehrman, what he does in his book is he attempts to attack question one. Do we have accurate copies of the original New Testament documents? And what he does in his book is he tries to say, no, we don't have an accurate copy of the original, Old Test or the original New Testament documents. The problem with his book is this. What, some of what he says in his book is actually true, but the conclusions that he draws from the truth are false. He, it's very sly what he does. And what, what, what do I mean? So are there variants with the manuscripts? Are there variant readings? Yes, and I'm about to show you a hypothetical example of what some of the variants are and how little and minuscule they are. So what he does is, is he basically tries to create this thesis in this book, Misquoting Jesus, and he says, there can be no way we can know with any degree of certainty what Jesus said or did. But this is not the case at all if you really understand the arguments and what he's doing with the points that then, then he's twisting in his conclusions. In fact, if you look at some of the problem texts that he tries to bring up as variant readings within all the thousands of manuscripts that there are, he tries to make it sound like that these variant readings take away from major doctrines, and they don't. In fact, as, as we're about to look at a hypothetical example of this, um, most of the variants are just spelling differences. Uh, last week in that Moses movie that many of us watched, they show you an English version from the 1500s, and they compare it to the English version of today. There's a lot of spelling differences. Old English. How many of you have ever tried to read Old English before? It's like you're almost reading a foreign language, isn't it? I mean, some of those letters are very oddly shaped. And so that was a great illustration to show that even just through a few hundred years of English language history, that spellings have changed. And so a most, a majority of the variants are just spelling differences. And so what happens, though, is you get these guys in their books in these secular universities, but I'll also say this, it's also in a lot of seminaries today. 
a lot of liberal seminaries, which I also call cemeteries, seminaries, cemeteries, uh, because you go there for your faith to die, because you go into these religion classes and you come out twisted in a pretzel, not sure what God said. Hmm, that sounds familiar. That sounds like the very first question the enemy ever asked humanity. Yea, hath God said? Isn't that fascinating? Anyway, um, so our children, what, so the danger, parents, is that our children go to these universities, even to some Christian universities, and they sit under professors who have an academic and a psychological advantage. And, you know, because they're, it's the first time they're out on their own, you know, they're 18, mom and dad don't know much. But now they got this cool, snazzy professor sitting in front of them with all these letters after their name, and they really sound smart, and everything they say must be true. They have no bias. They're, they're totally unbiased with what they're sharing, you see. This is, this is what happens when we don't prepare our kids, and that's why that 75% number is so real. So how do we know? that we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents. If you read chapter 9 of Frank Turek's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, you're going to see these four points that I'm about to mention to you, and they are these. Earlier manuscripts, more manuscripts, more accurately copied manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts. So those are all the blanks for your notes. Go ahead and write those down real quick because we're going to move through these rather quickly. This is just a surface touching of these four pieces of evidence that we can trust that we have an accurate copy of the original first century documents in our hands today. I tell you, going back through, I've known this for years, I've studied this for years, but just even going back through it this week, there were several times when I just stopped and just had a little mini worship service and said, God, I'm so thankful that I have your word right here in my hands that I can trust it, that I can live it, that I can share it, that I can learn about you from it. So how do we know that we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament? And if you want to dig deeper into this topic, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler, two great apologists, will help in explaining this. So number one, and actually we're going to look at these first two points together, earlier and more manuscripts, earlier and more manuscripts. What I want to do is show you a chart on this next screen of the Bible, the New Testament, compared to other ancient works of literature. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a conversation with a skeptic or an atheist, and they're going to say, ah, the Bible is so old. It was written so many centuries after the fact of what happened. And this is what Ehrman says in his book. You know, there's just all these legends had gotten started. And yeah, Jesus might have existed. We're not even really sure about that. Some, Some... What's so funny is some atheists say that they are not even sure that Jesus is a person of history. Well, do you realize there's more attestation that Jesus actually existed than uh, several, several people of the first century? And you can read about those in the book. It's incredible. So Jesus was a person of history. And for anybody who even questions that, I'm like, okay, how can you know anything then from, from, from the ancient world? But uh, Homer's Iliad and, and the Odyssey, there's a lot of different writers and their works And what you see on this chart is uh, two things. You see the time gap from when the things happened to when they were written down. And then you have the number of manuscripts. So in blue, you've got the time gap between the first original original writing and the most recent copies that we know of. And then you have the number of manuscripts. So the New Testament... They have done all the study, and they can put it down to to a fact now that there are fragments of the Gospel of Mark 
that are as early as 25 years from the time of Jesus when he lived on this earth. 25 years. I wish I owned some of those fragments. Those would be incredible things to have in a rare book collection. But 25 years, the Gospel of Mark, parts of the writing of, of Mark. The, the next uh, ancient work of, of, of history, writings, books of history, is Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And the time gap between the original that was written and the copies that we have is 500 years. So if an atheist is going to question whether the Bible is true and whether we know about that, then, 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 then in honesty, how can they even know that we have Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey? How can we know that we have any of the writings of any of these others? I mean, look, look at Plato. 1,200 years from the original writings of Plato to the most recent copies that we know we have. So what you see is, is you see the reliability of the New Testament documents far exceed any ancient work of literature that we have. Now, that's just the time gap. But look at the number of manuscripts. What do we mean by manuscripts? The Bible wasn't written in English, as many of you know, and maybe some of you don't. So the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and Greek. And those languages, of course, have been around for thousands of years. And those were the original languages of which the Bible was written. And these manuscripts, many of them are in those original languages. Now, some, some would be in Latin. Um, but, but you see that these manuscripts far outweigh any of the other ancient works of literature. I mean, the second, uh, we have close to 5,700 manuscripts that we can compare. Now, let me just point out an illustration here, and that is this. If I was to have you write down some information right now. Let's say you took out a pen and, pe pen and a piece of paper, and I was going to give you my social security number, my address, my phone number. I was going to give that to you, and you all wrote that down. And then you were to turn those in. Question, would there be some errors out there from some of y'all who might have written down um, a number wrong? Yeah. But if we're able to take 100 or so pieces of paper, lay them up here, and compare those pieces of paper together, we'd be able to arrive at what I said. That's exactly what God did in giving to us the word of God. He didn't just give it to one person. There's, a, there's about 40 different human penmen that God gave the word to over a period of about 15 or 1,600 years. And in all those, never once do they disagree in doctrine or in the revelation of the story of who God is. Are there differences in spelling? Yes, depending on where you lived, you spelled a word a certain way, a different way. Don't talk to my wife about how to pronounce the word creek, all right? She's from Kansas. You know how she pronounces the word creek? Crick. And if I heard her say crick, how would I write it? C-R-I-C-K and not C-R-E-E-K. How many of you know that the right way to say creek is creek? Raise your hand. How many of you are like, no, pastor, you are dead wrong. It's crick. You need to get right with the Lord. Okay, some of you are like, it's crick. All right. You, so you agree with my wife. The point is, is if we have those kinds of disagreements, even in our current language today, think about all the idioms of the first century and all those things. But again, it's just spelling differences. Uh, well, I don't say just spelling. There, are there some areas where things are omitted? Sure, but it's never changing a doctrine. And as you compare the 5,700 plus manuscripts, 
you're able to arrive at the text. It's an incredible thing when you start to study this. And so this is a graphical representation of the Bible compared to all the other ancient works of literature. So if someone says, well, we can't know what the Bible really ever said. Bart Ehrman, that's what he says. He says, you can't ever know. There's 400,000 variants, 400,000 errors. He says, you can't know. Then Bart Ehrman, be consistent because you can't know then anything from ancient literature. And yet they'll talk about Plato, they'll talk about Homer, they'll talk about all these other great guys of ancient history. But they don't weigh it on the same. Why? Because the Bible is an interesting manuscript. The Bible contains miracle. They don't want to put the Bible on the same level as these because the Bible points to a God. And so the conclusion of this chart is is that if you cannot honestly reconstruct the New Testament then you cannot reconstruct anything from the ancient world. But no one doubts whether we have Plato's writings accurately copied, but people doubt the New Testament because it claims miracle. And that is something that the secularists hold an a priori bias against. But if you cannot reconstruct the New Testament, then go ahead and throw out every other ancient world document. So, earlier in more manuscripts... Hands down, the Bible far outseeds, specifically the New, the New Testament, far outseeds every ancient work of literature. It's incredible. Three, more accurately copied manuscripts. More accurately copied manuscripts. How do we know what the originals said? How do we know that? Well, again, here's this illustration, and I put it up on the screen to kind of graphically illustrate it. So in the middle, we have the original first century document, the original uh, writing of Romans, let's say, all right? And then, of course, as Bibles get used, how many of you have one of your grandparents' old Bibles in your possession or one of your mom and dad's old Bibles? Raise your hand. How many of you know that that old Bible, most of them are falling apart? Why are they falling apart? Because your mom or dad or your grandparents read them. And I still have one of my grandmom's old Ryrie study Bibles, And that thing is literally held together with packing tape, duct tape, and it's because she used it. You know what happened to all those first century documents? They were getting used by the the people. And of course, back then, they didn't have a printing press like we do today. And so these documents were rare. And we're going to talk about how rare some of them were. So it's incredible the amount of manuscript evidence we had. And we we would even have more if Diocletian didn't come along. And I'll mention him here in a second. Because he tried to stamp out Christianity just before Constantine took power. And he tried to wipe out every document. I'm thankful he wasn't able to do that. So you have the original manuscripts. Let's say we have the original, the original autograph of Romans written by the Apostle Paul himself sent to the Church of Rome. And then what did those churches do? That truth was so amazing that they copied it and they shared those letters with other people. And so you have multiple copies of Romans, all right? So you got copy one, copy two, copy three, copy four. And so here's a hypothetical scenario of how this would play out. So in copy one, there's a missing J in this verse, Romans 3.26. God is just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. But if you were just reading copy one of Romans, you wouldn't have the J. You'd be like, God is us. So you wouldn't know. So then you'd have to go to another copy to compare. So copy two, God is, okay, now you have the J, but you're missing the U. Okay? And the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. You go to copy three, and there's another spelling error. Someone left out the S, okay? Um, God is, okay, now the S is missing. Justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And again, was that because they intentionally made an error or just because they're 
uh, quill ran out of ink at that moment. Uh, you know, who, who knows exactly what, what happened. But, but we take these documents and compare them, uh, verse or copy four. Again, so, so you see that in each one, there's a little bit of a variant. And this is what these guys are calling errors. And what they do is, is they double count the errors to make it sound like oh, 400,000 errors. So what they'll do is if you have just this one, they count that in all the other manuscripts against the other manuscripts. So they're double counting errors to make it sound like there's a lot and there's not. When you really do the science and you do the reading behind this, you find out that these are the kinds of things that there are in these manuscripts. But here's the question. You have four, four copies of Romans and you're able to compare all four. Are you able to get to what the original said? Are you able to know what the original said? Of course, God is just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. And as you really study this out, what you find is, is that the New Testament documents have far fewer variations than even this hypothetical example. And so can we get to what the original document said if we do the, if, if we do the science? And then what this is called, it's called textual criticism. And it's studying the science of manuscripts. And if you go into this science, you're not going to have a life. By the way, uh, uh, this will become your life because you'll be studying all these ancient documents, and that's what these professors do. And so the point is, is we can get to what the original said, more accurately copied manuscripts. And so it's within the copies that we have the original preserved. And so God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why is Jesus the only way? I love the answer in this verse. Because an infinitely just God must deal with sin, but an infinitely loving God doesn't want to destroy the sinner. So what does God do? He finds a voluntary substitute within himself to take the payment of sin for us. That way God can be just and the justifier of the one who accepts the free gift. Isn't that good news, church? And so we have these variations in the text. And as I mentioned to you, if y'all all wrote down stuff I gave you this morning, there would be variants but we'd be able to get to the original of what was said. So we have more accurately copied manuscripts, and we do. And I and, uh, don't have time to get into the Dead Sea Scrolls this week. Next week, I'm going to be sharing a little bit more about that, and the evidence from that for the Old Testament is incredible. Just the copying down of, of all the things that God said. And so we have more accurately copied manuscripts. And then we have more abundantly supported manuscripts. So we have earlier, we have more, we have more accurately copied, and we have more abundantly supported manuscripts. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, this guy Diocletian, he, uh, he was the Roman emperor from 284 to 305 AD. Um, if Diocletian had gotten his wish, he would have destroyed every manuscript in existence. He sought to do this, and he also destroyed many Christians in the process. Very intense persecution. Here's what's incredible. This is, this is a fact that just blows my mind, what I'm about to share with you. Are you ready? Are you buckled up? Are you ready? I mean, Maybe this is just fascinating to me, so this is fascinating. Diocletian's purpose was to destroy every copy of the Bible out there, every one. Who knows how many copies were destroyed in his great persecution? He wasn't successful, though, was he? <laughs> doesn't matter who has tried in human history to thwart the plan of God, to destroy God's word, Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, and God will preserve his word for every generation. But here's what's really cool about that. Let's say Diocletian had been successful. 
Let's say he had been successful. Let's say that he had wiped out every copy of the Bible in existence. Do you realize that you would be able to reconstruct almost the entire New Testament, minus 11 verses in the book of 3rd John, every single verse from the writings of the 1st through 3rd century church pastors? That's incredible. In fact, they quoted the New Testament over 36,289 times in their sermons. So if you were to go to the Library of Congress and you were to pull down all the writings of Origen, Augustine, and, and a lot of these guys, you know, they had interesting things going on, but, but yet they preached God's word and we could reconstruct the entire New Testament, even if Diocletian had wiped out all the official Bibles. The church fathers, the pastors of those first and through third centuries preached God's word so powerfully and so clearly, they quoted it so often, you could reconstruct almost the entire New Testament. What that is a great powerful example of me of is that God preserves his word how? Through the believing church down through the centuries. And that's what he's done. That's what he's done. And so we have more abundantly supported manuscripts. The evidence, folks, is overwhelming. So how do you know that you've got an accurate copy of what God originally said in that first century when he wrote those documents out and gave them to the church? How can you know? Earlier manuscripts, um, the, these things were written down within two to three decades of it happening. In fact, um, scholars have been able to, to identify uh, 9 to 11 creeds from the first century church written in the Bible. In fact, the one from 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those creeds that was memorized and said over and over so the church wouldn't forget it. So what does all this mean for us? It means, guys, that no matter what Bart Ehrman says or what William Deaver says, we know that we have the word of God in our possession. We know that we can trust that we have an accurate copy earlier, more, more abundantly supported. We have these documents in our possession. Now, some have asked this question. Pastor, if the Bible really is God's word, then why would he not have just kept a true, original, preserved copy from the very hand of Paul and we wouldn't have trouble with all these copies. How many of you have ever thought that question? You know, if God, you know, could do that, why didn't he just preserve the original, the original autograph, you know, of all these books? Why didn't God do that? I'll give to you two reasons, possibly, as we kind of wrap things up here. Number one, if there was an original original, what do you think would be done with that original? It would be worshipped as a relic. Where the actual Bible itself would be kind of worshiped like a relic. And, and does God want us to worship the Bible or to worship him? He wants us to worship him. The, the Bible is the conduit to know him, but, but we don't worship the Bible. And, and unfortunately, we see a lot of religions who have tried to find all these relics, these holy relics, and they worship them. And so perhaps that's one reason, but I'll give you even a better reason, I think. And that is this. If there was only one original copy and only one person had possession of it, what could that person do with that original? They could abuse it. They could contort it. They could make it say what they wanted it to say. So here's what's fascinating. 
It's actually within the thousands of manuscripts that you have out there that you're able to protect God's word against people trying to twist and pervert God's word because you have multiple copies that you're able to compare with each other. And so if you get somewhere in the first century and you get the Gnostics in there and they start trying to put in their Gnostic heresies, you know, you can identify it very quickly because you have all these other thousands of, of, of manuscripts to compare with. And you're able to preserve God's word more, better, by not preserving the original. So God could, by not preserving the original autographs, God could better preserve the original autographs. Fascinating. And so, do we have an accurate copy of the New Testament? I can say, based on my study of God's word, and based on my study of these resources, that yes, we do. Now, the question next week is going to be, how do we know that this accurate copy of God's word tells us the truth about God? And I cannot wait to share that with you. As we close this morning, I just want to remind you of this verse. Peter says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Folks, my prayer is that over the next couple of weeks that our love for, our respect, our reading our devotion to God's word would increase. That we would love God's word, live God's word, share God's word, learn from God's word, because this is all that we have to know specifically. Oh, we can look up at the stars. The heavens declare the glory of God, but faith cometh by hearing. Saving faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Folks, today we have an accurate record of who God is and what he has done. Will you trust this record for your salvation? That's the most important thing. But then will you trust this record for your daily living? Our challenge is that we would take the, uh, the word of these eyewitnesses. Next week we're going to look at that. The eyewitness testimony is incredible. That these men were telling the truth that they were inspired by God. Let me ask you a question as we close. Do you have that kind of love for God's word? Is this something that, is God's word something that you read as the revelation of who he is, understanding his heart for you? Or is this kind of a relic, dusty relic? If someone was to look at your Bible a hundred years from now, would it be any worse for wear? The challenge in our life is not just to know these facts, but to have them be ingrained into our life, that we would be people of the book living God's word, loving God's word, sharing God's word. Let's pray.